Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Natasha Mascarenas, and this is our Wednesday show, where we niche down into a single topic, think about a question, and unpack the rest. The goal with today's episode is give everyone a helpful framing when they're thinking about crypto. So our big question this week is, what do the crypto curious need to know in order to be more savvy? Interpret that how you will, but we will be getting into a lot of questions. And to help me out with that, I am joined by the wonderful Alex Wilhelm. Alex, how are you? I'm fantastic because once again, we are taking on a topic that we are going to be able to sew up neatly to complete our conversation about and never have to come back to again. It's perfect. (laughs) Someone recently told me like the best essays just like leave people with more questions. And it just gave me the permission I didn't need (laughs) to be vague and loose ended. <laughs> they, they did say essays, Natasha, not perhaps podcasts. <laughs> there could be a differentiation, but the good news is we're not alone. Yes. So to help us explore, we are joined by Lucas Matney and Anita Ramaswamy, the hosts of TechCrunch's newest podcast focusing on crypto news and the best name I think we have in the podcast world so far, Chain Reaction. Yes. Lucas and Anita, thank you so much for joining Equity. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. We're super excited. You guys have both been on the show at separate times. So this is kind of like a reunion of sorts. It's going to be great. <laughs> yes, it's been a little bit, but I'm excited to chat chat with your audience. <laughs> so <laughs> before we... <laughs> Sounds so corporate. I'm thankful for your, accessing your audience. I, I appreciate it. Access corporate. A, co- a coffee chat with Lucas and Anita. <laughs> yes, a desk Fireside. side. Oh, desk no. side. Um, <laughs> um, well, I, before we get into like the actual questions, maybe we can do like a quick bite on chain reaction and the goal of the show. Anita, tell us a little bit about what you guys have recorded so far. And then Lucas, add whatever she's missed. Yeah, so we've had two episodes of Chain Reaction so far. It's been really fun. And so far, the format that we're following is sort of starting out each episode by talking about the news. So we've talked through a couple of different headlines, like big things going on in the crypto world, and given our thoughts on those news developments. And then second half of the show, we've been bringing on guest experts to talk about different topics. The first week we had Justin Blau. He goes by his stage name, which is Three Lau. He's a DJ. And he was talking to us about music NFTs and music royalties. So that was super fun. And then last week we had on Sean McGuire, who's an investor at Sequoia in crypto companies. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, there's so much that happens every single week in the crypto space that we distill it to about three topics per week that we kind of jam on. But ultimately, we leave like 10 on the cutting room floor because there's so much happening in the space every day. This could be a daily podcast, but we really, <laughs> in terms of it being every week, we get to focus on three like really big topics and just kind of chat about them. And then we have a guest on who, yeah, generally they know a lot more about the space than we do. They have their things they want to sell. So we try to minimize that a little bit, but they've got a lot to say. I mean, you're doing a hard job, which is like getting people on to talk about crypto. I'm sure there's like so few <laughs> people you can pick from. <laughs> it is it is the easiest job of all time. All of these VCs want nothing more than to talk about their W's and forget their L's ever happened. Yeah, which is where we come in, I guess. <laughs> yes, we, we remind them of them. A question about that. Are people wanting to come on the show because they want to signal to the market that they're kind of with it and hip and a person people should reach out to to gain clout? I mean, that's always been true, but it feels to be more true in the community-oriented crypto world. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of crypto thought leadership going on, and I feel like there's a lot of signaling, you know, with investors, even founders, like kind of everybody wants to to prove that they know a lot about crypto. At least for me as a reporter covering the space, it's taken a bit of humility to just kind of stepping back and realizing that I actually am not an expert. I don't know everything. I am 
informed and I keep up with the space and I read a lot about it. But at the end of the day, I think a lot of people in crypto are learning about this sort of alongside me and Lucas. And that's the approach that we want to take in Chain Reaction, that like, it's a new space and we want to do this together. We're not going to be able to answer every single question, which is why we do have the experts come on. Yeah. I mean, we want to steal some of that energy for this show because I definitely go back and forth between having Snark be in mind, but also putting it aside when it comes to crypto. It's just a hard thing to do because I think a lot of people who are kind of paying attention to crypto only let it impact them when it fades into like viral moments. And so a few over the last year to kind of get into our first topic was when a DAO was formed to create the constitution. There's a lot of rich people buying monkeys. I mean, NFT sales and a lot of the money that is around crypto is how it's been defined and understood by a lot of people. And I wanted to start there because I guess like the first question is, how do we reverse engineer it as reporters and decide what does it really take to recover this sort of thing? Like, I mean, should Constitution DAO be the way people understand DAOs today, months later? Well, so there's a reason that people are always tossing around the phrase Ponzi scheme when it comes to crypto. And it's because it relies a lot on attention being generated and channeled into specific investments. That's why people always talk about waves. They talk about the bull wave or whatever. There are these time periods where a lot of people see the price of Bitcoin generally. That's like the one leading the way. Bitcoin's price rising. And then all of a sudden they're like, am I missing out on something? Am I like a schmo making a salary job when there's money to be had? betting on something I totally don't understand. That's the general thing. And then people are like, oh, maybe I should learn more about this. Really, if you were to ask most investors what year they got involved in crypto, it would be like very much grouped along the lines of these waves. Like they'd say, mm. I got involved in 2013. I got involved in 2016 or 2017. So it's that's kind of an interesting thing there. My question is, are those accretive? Do they stack? Do they add up? Or do we see kind of people that showed up in 2013 fading out by 2016 and the 2016 crowd kind of fading out by 2020? Well, yeah, those people, they maybe they started getting involved in the space in 2013, but I can guarantee that 70% of these people, if they made it through that bull run, and if they made it through the 2016-2017 bull run, they weren't doing anything in 2018 with the space. It's a very small crew of people who are like made it through all these so-called crypto winters. But of course, they're never going to say that. The first time they put a dollar into Coinbase was the first step in becoming a very stalwart part of the space. And <laughs> Founders can trust them because they never gave up on it. Yeah, there's there's a lot of revisionist history that goes on with VCs and crypto. Yes. Has there been any recent viral moments that have given either of you more hope or had more of an on-ramp effect? Hope, hope is an odd word because <laughs> we don't have hope on this show. <laughs> well, that's like, you know, it's kind of the fascinating thing. It's like the journalist role in covering tech in general. I think a lot of people have critiqued tech press for being more pessimistic about tech in the past few years. But it ultimately raises the question of like, what's the journalist's role in covering an industry? As someone who feels like I understand crypto pretty closely, should I feel like I want it to succeed? As someone who's basically leveraged their career as a writer into learning more about this space, I'm kind of saying that I think it's going to take off because otherwise I would have been wasting a lot of my time. But, you know, I'm not like, oh, God, I hope this person makes $40 million this year. That'd just make my life. <laughs> Lucas, what was your beat before crypto? <laughs> so I've worn I've worn a few hats at TechCrunch. I've been at TechCrunch since I was an intern fetching coffee occasionally for Alex yeah. back in 2015. Wow. But, but. So Talk it, about it, glow up. I, uh, coffee and cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> Lucas. <laughs> we leave some things at 410,000. Actually, I did have you go get cigarettes. That's right. That mm, All right. So not my best moment. But my I, this was supposed to be a, a zing about you, not about me. You were covering <laughs> VR before. And yes, 
and you were actually so early to VR that the industry didn't quite grow to the point in which you kind of needed all of your attention. Are there any? I've been a bit of a patron saint of vaporware at TechCrunch. <laughs> uh, I really enjoy covering the VR industry. It went from, you know, in 2016, 2017, I was able to cover four or five funding rounds a week. By 2019, one or two a month. And then it was just like, I was covering a bunch of random stuff, but it wasn't really worth me like keeping up with all the people in the space or stuff like that. And so basically when this, when crypto started its last bull run, I was just like, yeah, let's do this. Why has crypto come back so many times? I guess is kind of my question because VR had a cycle and cryptos had various cycles, the ICO boom, for example, and so forth. It keeps kind of coming back to the fore. We keep having to talk about it on, on the show. So why is that? I mean, actually, I'm, I'm super curious, Anita, what you think here, because you, unlike Lucas, went from a super hot beat fintech <laughs> into crypto. So you probably saw like some tailwinds yeah. for this to take off. Well, and I think what's interesting is actually before this, I was covering traditional finance. So Wall Street, like big banks, private equity. And what's funny about crypto is that in a lot of industries, like you would think that big institutions adopting a new technology, it's a good thing. It's a sign of traction. But as a crypto reporter, I found that it's really hard to just sort of let the flow of money guide what I think is important because there is so much money flowing around and there are so many different startups getting funded. And just because they're receiving funding doesn't mean that they're legitimate. Or just because a big bank is adopting a certain technology doesn't mean that it's without its flaws. And we kind of saw that with the Axie Infinity hack. You know, this small startup just attracted so much venture capital from Andreessen, like some of the biggest names. And at the end of the day, there was still a major security vulnerability that led to a lot of money being lost. So as someone who came from the world of Wall Street and also covered it for a little while, I've had to sort of take a step back from just following the money and actually try to follow the product and, and what's actually being built. When that Axie Infinity hacked happened, I was like, how snarky can I get with this headline? And I was like, Axie Infinity has a reverse funding round of $625 <laughs> <No>. million. Because <laughs> it is following the money in those cases a little bit, because it's like following the money out of the startup's pocket, you know, the, right. the Dow pockets or whatever. I'm, I'm curious about about the, the question of decentralization in the crypto world today. Because when I think back to when I was covering Bitcoin in ages past, people were very, very hardcore about the fact that this was permissionless, that it was distributed, and that the founder, essentially Satoshi, was gone. And so there was no there was no leader. Yet in the world of Ethereum, we have Vitalik. In the crypto world, we have Katie Hahn, we have Andreessen, we have a lot of these major funds. It feels much more clustered around centers of power, even as it's scaled. And so to me, there's a bit of a tension there. And so I'm working to help people understand this to become savvier. Is that tension material and does it matter? Yeah. So I think that the tension really matters. I think decentralization is super important to a lot of early adopters of crypto. I mean, that is the whole ethos behind the technology. And in a lot of ways, decentralization is the precursor for security. But on the other hand, you think about efficiency and the ability for a lot of these technologies to actually grow and scale. And sometimes that does require a trade-off and it requires some sacrifice of decentralization. So I think the reason a lot of centralized crypto platforms, like let's say like Coinbase as an exchange, have taken off is because they are able to provide some efficiency in the market. While there is a group of OG crypto people who really care about decentralization, when you think about like, you know, the mass of users and sort of like everyday people getting involved in Web3, like, do they really care at the end of the day about decentralization or do they just care about ease of use? There's something there also where maybe it's not quote unquote decentralization, but people in the industry will argue that simply the ability to like, you know, you're operating on a protocol that you can leave one client and go to another 
that in itself is like a useful facet of decentralization. So like, say you're on Twitter or something, and some eccentric billionaire buys it, and all of a sudden you don't want to be on the platform anymore. I, this is just a crazy <laughs> hypothetical. hypothetical. Uh, okay. Imagine that happened. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe in a weird multiverse future. But you can be like, okay, I don't want to be on a platform with these values or something. And you can take your data, and you can take your identity, and you can migrate it to another platform. That's not possible on current platforms, but I think people think just based on kind of the tenets of how crypto platforms and crypto spaces have evolved, that's something you'll be able to do. So like, yeah, sure. OpenSea is super centralized. It's got a CEO. There's no coin or anything associated with it. There's no DAO. But if something better came along with lower fees or something like that, people could take their NFTs and sell them on that. Yeah, I, I want to spend like a few minutes on this idea of ease of use and how we get from there to a truly decentralized world. When we see these companies that kind of are doing both and do have the CEO and do have venture capital behind them, are you guys viewing them as a crypto right now sort of movement? And 20 years from now, 50 years from now, they're no longer going to be the companies that represent this wave? Or should consumers be paying attention to this and this will be? I mean, I'm not asking you to really call for the of them, but just like the role that they play, will it be more relevant or less relevant once decentralization takes over? No pressure. Well, we chatted about this a little bit with Sean McGuire on the podcast last week, actually. And I think there's this concept of like web 2.5 versus web 3.0, where 2.5 is like blockchain-based technology, but still operated by centralized companies. And so that is a big question and sort of point of debate in the crypto community is like, are we ever going to reach true decentralization or are we going to be stuck in this sort of limbo where we're using the blockchain, but the governance structures of the companies aren't actually decentralized? I do think that's where DAOs can come in and you know, that's a really new emerging space. And there's a lot of regulatory questions and gray areas, obviously, but DAOs sort of do provide a potential mechanism for corporate decision-making to be more decentralized. At the end of the day, though, I do think those centralized mechanisms are sort of necessary for user adoption in some way. Yes, I agree. Because last weekend, we saw the Yuga Labs board ape other side (laughs) (laughs) NFT mass mint. Close enough. That was on the Ethereum mainnet or the L1, Mm -hmm. and it clogged all of Ethereum. And then the people were like, well, maybe we should move ApeCoin to a different chain. We'll have the DAO should look at that. And I was like, oh my God, this is brilliant. Corporations have found a way to offload all responsibility for their actions to a DAO that they probably control behind the scenes, but they get to pretend that they don't. And therefore they get to offload responsibility. It's, it's ideal. I'm going to do a DAO for my fucking laundry. That way I don't have to do it. <laughs> it is. Uh, so I, I worked with Yuga Labs ApeCoin DAO on like a launch story for ApeCoin. And it was kind of funny because like I was like, hey, I have some questions on this. And they're like, OK, well, you're not technically talking to Yuga. Oh, my God. This is a question for the DAO. And I was just like, oh, OK. I mean, it is really hard to cover because like so much of this is regulatory legalese and you're just kind of like, okay, like I'll play this game. But then sometimes you're just like, okay, well, like, who are these board members? And in some cases, the board members on that are people who are investors in the company. Hmm. Are there people who have high profile partnerships with the company? None of the people are executives at Yuga Labs, but ultimately it feels like 
it would be a big backstab for them not to go in Yuga Labs' way. <laughs> so it raises some questions. It's weird. I mean, I feel like consumers are already lazy, me included, to understand all the incentives that are playing around and impacting their purchasing power. But with crypto especially, incentives feel like the really hard thing to extract. And that plus the layer of you need to really engage with crypto and be someone who purchases and invests with it in order to understand it, like that critique and school of thought, to me just like creates this really crazy fire of like, well, a lot of people are just going to put their hands up and walk away because they don't want to participate as the only way to really understand those incentives. There's no question in there. That's just like the rant and me struggling as a journalist the, with with trying to understand it. The question you're asking, Natasha, I think, is can we get to a point of ease of use in which people can actually use this either implicitly or without the need to do a bunch of research in it? When do you not need a master's degree in not getting your money token to yeah, use crypto? Yeah, 100%. And it's kind of inspired <sighs> by my friend who was like shook when I told him that journalists can't own up to a certain amount of crypto. We can't own and put that much money into it. And he was like, well, then this is why the media hates crypto. And I was like, <laughs> so let's uh, let's answer his questions. <laughs> Be like, if you were making $10 million on it, you'd love it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You'd have no questions for it. <laughs> few I, things I wouldn't love for $10 million. Keep going. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I have lots of thoughts on this, but I would generally push back on the idea that you have to use this stuff to know what it is. I vaguely know how Carta works. I've never worked at a company that uses it. Would I have an intimate understanding if I was an active user of the product? Sure. And like went through the workflows? Sure. But like ultimately, you can absorb so much without having to go through these specific workflows. And I think it's tough as journalists, especially because how much do you really need to do in order to understand some of the stuff? Like you can witness a lot of it from the sidelines. And I think that it's a little bit of a lie that particularly crypto trade pubs tell themselves that they have to use these products in order to understand them. I don't think you do. Yeah. Anita, do you agree with that? Well, I think there's another dimension that I want to add to it, which is that when it comes to crypto, there's a lot of stuff and a lot of words and jargon that seem like they're really about new things, but they reflect concepts that have always been around. Okay, Web3 is this new thing, but what does it really mean? And when you start digging into some of the structural components of what these companies are doing, a lot of it is really similar to what regular companies do. And it's interesting, like I'm someone who's like read a lot of political theory, I was a political science major, and some of the terms that are used to describe decentralization remind me of leftist politics. Like there are these big theoretical sort of terms to represent something new. But then when you look at what crypto companies are actually doing, like, is it actually decentralized? I don't know. I think they're operating a lot of times the same way that a lot of Web2 companies operated. Like just because you have a DAO and just because you're calling it decentralized doesn't necessarily mean that decision making is actually distributed. <laughs> it is deeply fascinating to me also that VCs are so down for DAOs because <laughs> governance tokens operate just like shares. And like all of these companies have massive massive controlling stakes that if two of them vote a certain way, all the little peons with five or six shares worth of something aren't going to be able to do anything. Yes, but a pre-mint is essentially preferred shares in a company, right? Yeah. So like, <laughs> or buying governance tokens at a discount. Like they're still finding mechanisms as a way to hand off control to money elites, which is fine because capitalism, but if this is going to be different, I guess to Anita's point, there is this lefty community hugs, hunky-dory, crunchy granola, Oregon aspect to crypto. And then I turn around and it's like Peter Thiel and the boys. Yeah. I'm like, what the f***? I'm like, which those, is more? Those are the hunky-dory. 
I think so. I guess like maybe to end, Anita had brought up a really interesting concept a while ago when we were talking about this, which is like Bitcoin's biggest PR problem and how a lot of the loudest people in crypto are either doing the sales thing or doing the Peter Thiel thing. Yeah. And I don't really know what the long term impact of it is other than, yeah, I mean, casting this really one shade on all of the industry. Yeah. I mean, I think that the idea of decentralized decision making, the idea of community building and a lot of the ideas behind the blockchain are really promising. And they represent a lot of optimism for a lot of people who have been historically excluded from the financial system. But then when you see sort of what Alex and I were just chatting about in terms of like a lot of the Web3 concepts are actually just things that already happened in companies and that already happened in Web2, you have to dig a layer deeper. And so what's happened with Bitcoin is that a lot of the people sort of who are pro Bitcoin, the really visible faces who are at the forefront of the adoption movement for Bitcoin are people like Peter Thiel. I mean, they had the Bitcoin Miami conference last month and they invited Jordan Peterson. They invited Dave Portnoy from Barstool Sports. I mean, it was a ridiculous lineup, right? And at the end of the day, like, you know, if I take myself out of the journalist seat and I think as an average person, just sort of looking at these are the people representing the most popular cryptocurrency, like I would probably be a little turned off by that. And it only represents a really small select group of maybe people with a sort of libertarian ideology. When I do think crypto does have some potential as a more widespread payment system. And like a lot of times I think we kind of get lost in a lot of the ideology and it's easy to get distracted by that. But what are the actual useful cases that we can use crypto? Like that's what we sort of lose sight of when we focus on the views of people like Peter Thiel. Yeah. I know Natasha said that she wants to move towards a conclusion, but I want to ask one more question while I have you guys. Do it, please. This is therapeutic. I just, I love this conversation. So (laughs) on the point about the Bitcoin conference, right? That happened in Miami. It was a bit of a mess. And then last week, there was the FTX SALT conference in the Bahamas that Jacqueline Melnick went to from TC Plus and packed and seemingly very serious. And so there seems to be a, a divergence between the OG Bitcoin community and then the people who believe in crypto, quote, unquote. And there is a tension between the two, but it does feel like the market is moving away from Bitcoin maximalism incrementally, but steadily. And so I'm curious for people out there who are aspiring to get more into the Web3 world, do they need to start with Bitcoin or can they just start right with ETH? Well, I would remind you exactly where the Bitcoin conference was located. It was in Miami, which I think is almost more Miami was pouring through into the conference than even entirely Bitcoin. I think there's some (laughs) element of being the top market cap coin for so long that they don't feel like they have to be super scrappy in terms of justifying why they are. So all these people who are whales in the space have gotten to kind of coke out on their philosophy. (laughs) Um, So like, I think you look at some of these people and like, why are you interested in Ethereum or Solana or something? They'll be like, oh, we have like these really interesting developers that are on board. We've got all these different apps coming. We have a very ambitious idea of what the future of the internet looks like. Look at this term, Web3. You ask that same question to Bitcoin people, and they're going to focus on a lot more, you know, philosophical elements of what does a monetary system mean to mankind? What does, you know, not having the centralization involved with kind of maintaining these systems, this is an area where they will kind of geek out. Yes. The Bitcoin bros love to send me like charts of the federal monetary supply. The crypto kids love to send me like ponies. They're (laughs) NFTs. Have we ever seen a sector so dramatically split up into two camps that like are kind of talking to each other, but 
Not really. I mean, I don't know. I feel like in AI or something, there have been like neural net geeks versus like, <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't know. I feel like they're like minor class warfare in terms of, you know, these things. But it is definitely very pronounced because there's $2 trillion of market cap in Bitcoin or something. I don't know what 1.72 trillion of which Bitcoin's 0.723. Come on. Okay, <laughs> How did you not know I, that I, off the top of your head? I'm, uh, yeah, two, two trillion for the entire yeah. crypto market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, 1.72. Right, That's yeah, yeah. $280 billion <laughs> different. Look at look it. Changes I, every day, so, every hour. Sorry that I'm... Carry the zero, you know, it's all Not fine. to be the poor kid on the podcast, but $280 billion is real money to me. You don't have that kind of money. No, man. I, I didn't buy Bitcoin. I started covering it when it was 100 bucks. <laughs> I do have this very key core memory of when I was an internet tech crunch. The hardware wallet company Ledger sent Alex a like one of their early devices or something and he had like never used it so I grabbed it out of his office desk and they had a, like a metal card inside that you could use to store your seed phrase. I like tossed it out didn't look at anything about it and just use the case as my wallet for my credit cards <laughs> and this was like 2015 when like Bitcoin was like there was nothing printed on it. Oh. It wasn't your seed phrase Alex. No, I, 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 <laughs> it was unused but like <laughs> I, I, used, I used this like case for this thing that could have made me millions and I was just like, oh, this looks like a nice thing for my ATM card with like four thousand oh, dollars in my, my account. Oh my god, <laughs> Lucas! If I, I stories. <laughs> if I had just spent half of my drinking money in 2013 buying Bitcoin, <laughs> I would be a bajillionaire. And yet, he, you know, it, it didn't happen. That's okay. It's okay. It's I can right. work for a living. That's why me and Lucas are here too. Clearly not billionaires. So <laughs> I feel like the episode ended up being less about like how to get savvy and more on like how to be realistic and what boundaries to consider, which is like still helpful, I think, in a way, because it, the biggest reason I at least like will stop reading a story or start reading a story is because of the difficult terminology and because of just like this huge cynicism of like, how can you tell me that it's this way when it's so clearly owned this way? And so I guess I feel a little bit clearer on how you guys are thinking about it. And hopefully listeners too understand a little bit about how TC approaches crypto coverage because it clearly is not with just snark but with a little bit of healthy skepticism. Yeah, there's this kind of big internal argument, I think, amongst crypto journalists, which we generally don't necessarily think that broader tech journalists understand this space super well, because it is very difficult and you have to like spend a lot of time investing in it. Then you're kind of in this weird position where you're like, well, we're not exactly aligned with mainstream tech journalism because there's overall a fairly negative tint, which I think we still hold. But then all these folks in the crypto space, they don't know what they want from the media side of things. For our podcast listeners, what's interesting, some people who just want to make a lot of money, they might see us as a couple of poors who are not going to make it. So they're they're not interested in our advice. But there are other people who are just like, we could listen to a ton of influencers talk about their takes on the crypto space. But these people have a lot of investments and a lot of different things. Their biases are very unclear. These aren't securities, so they don't have to disclose it to us. They can screw us in any way they want. That's kind of the argument for listening to tech media on this topic. We're not in bed with any of our guests. We're not trying trying to get, you know, these VCs. Maybe that was a poor term. Very <laughs> poor word choice there, Lucas. <laughs> yeah. Financially in bed. We're not financially <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, we'll cut that. Uh, we will not. <laughs> <laughs> Ultimately, I think it's good to not have your biases be also financial. Maybe that sounds like a crazy term to have, but <laughs> I think... I think we feel more comfortable. Yeah, just with it. just on a personal level to like wrap this all up. I, I think it's funny that Natasha mentioned boundaries because drawing boundaries with crypto, just like in my everyday life, very difficult. So I'm going to keep struggling there. It's like 
Wait, what do you mean? Are all your friends like give me yeah, all the advice? Yeah, no, and I feel or like I feel like on, on the weekends, you know, I'm trying to kick back. I'm trying to hang out. I, I open Netflix. It's like a documentary about a crypto scammer. I'm like, <laughs> God, I can't I can't get two seconds without thinking about this industry. So, and you know, that's how I felt. I came into our living room, and uh, my spouse was watching television. And I'm like, What are you watching? She goes, Something about WeWork. And I'm like, Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're like, I'm leaving. I'm gonna go watch The Bachelor. Like, goodbye. <laughs> like, like, pass. Yeah, I'm like, Oh yeah, I remember. I, I remember when this happened, and it wasn't anywhere near this exciting as it is on the television. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you both for doing that hard work and for everyone who wants a rational but energetic and interesting, entertaining look into the crypto world on a weekly basis, check out Chain Reaction. Anita and Lucas, thank you for joining Equity. Thanks yeah, for having thanks, us. Thanks, guys. And Alex, you're the best as always. Appreciate you. And we will be back on Friday with normal programming. Yes, we will. See you then. Bye. Bye.